It is said with confidence in one source I was looking at this week that 39 different composers have tried to shape Shakespeare's multi-layered comedy, A Midsummer Night's Dream, into an opera, but that only one has really found its way into the regular repertoire, and that's Benjamin Britten's version from the late 1950s. Of all of Shakespeare's plays, though, this seems to be the closest, perhaps, to what interested a composer who well knew how and where dreams slip into nightmare. So innocence is threatened when the lovers run off into the forest to escape the tyranny of social convention, otherwise known, in one case at least, as marriage. Then there's a sense <laughs> of the unearthly with Oberon, sung by a countertenor, and Titania and the fairies and their quarrel over a lovely boy stolen from an Indian king. The action is in a dark place at night, and that too, I'm sure, must have appealed to a composer who excelled at writing nocturnal music. That the resulting opera is one of a handful of successful works that borrow Shakespeare for their libretti is a tribute not just, I think, to Britain, but also to his partner, Peter Pierce, who worked with the composer in creating a text that is true to the original play and yet perfectly tailored to the composer's needs. In August 1959, Britain decided to compose a full-length opera to reopen the refurbished Jubilee Hall in Alborough at the following year's festival in June. This perhaps explains why Britain and Pierce decided to adapt a Midsummer Night's Dream. There simply wasn't time to commission a new libretto and for the amount of work that Britain and other composers always need to do on a new libretto. But Britain also admitted that he'd always liked Shakespeare's original play and that he was excited as a composer by the various levels of action between the three different groups of characters. He said, the play already had a strong verbal music of its own. The first task was to get it into manageable shape, which basically entails simplifying and cutting an extremely complex story. And indeed, we lose the whole first act of Shakespeare's original comedy. I do not, said Britain, feel in the least guilty at cutting the play in half. The original Shakespeare will survive. <laughs> the opera scored for strings and minimal woodwind and for brass and was a veritable battery of percussion in the pit and an onstage band. And each of the three groups of characters we meet, the lovers who've escaped into the Athenian woods, the fairies whose woods they are, and the rude mechanicals who've come there to rehearse their very tragic comedy about the horrible deaths of Pyramus and Thisbe, each of them are given their own particular kind of music. Well, we have a trio of guests this evening to guide us through the Athenian woods before this evening's performance of A Midsummer Night's Dream. We've got our very own fairy queen, ready to fall in love with an ass, the soprano Charlotte Beamont, who is covering the role of Titania in this revival of Robert Carson's production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And with her performing music from the opera will be Richard Pearson, a member of the English National Opera music staff. We're also joined by Sarah Hamza, who makes sure that anyone taking their place on stage for English National Opera is properly dressed. She is the costume supervisor with the company. And our first guest is the scholar Heather Weeb, a senior lecturer in music at King's College in London, who has a particular interest in 20th century English music. Will you please welcome Heather Weeb? <laughs> Heather, what do you think attracted Britain 
to uh, Shakespeare's play? Well, I think it's much as you said, uh, these practical reasons they needed something quickly. They needed something, uh, specifically, they needed something festive to open Jubilee Hall. And at the time, Britain w had just been commissioned to write the War Requiem. He was working on Curly River. These are not festive works. And so he needed something entirely new very quickly. Um, and then I think also, as you mentioned, it plays into some of his larger interests in writing night music. Uh, he'd written The Nocturne just a few years before. Um, he has these long-term interests in uh, music that's about sleep and dreams and enchantment. And so I think it really played into all of those um, kind of other tropes in his music. Yeah. How, how does Peter Pears, and I'm sure we need to think of this as a genuine partnership, yeah. um, how does Peter Pears shape the play into the libretto for, 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 for his partner? Well, as you said, the, the main thing is to cut the first act, um, and that really does change the, the, uh, change the feeling of the play in some ways, right? That you, um, you start not in, in the city, but you start in the forest, and you, you kind of um, enter into the, into the sound of the forest, and you spend most of the opera in that kind of space of dreams and night. Other than that, he didn't, you know, there are a lot of cuts to what they've, thought was a kind of expendable dialogue, but not a lot of major cuts. They keep all of Shakespeare's words um, with just one kind of added line of their own. To cut the first act from Shakespeare, to cut an act in which the whole uh, case for a father being allowed to marry his daughter to who he chooses, in which we have doubts about the, the Duke of Athens and his new bride getting married. To cut all of that and start with the fairies fundamentally changes yeah. where our centre of interest is, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, and I think musically too, the centre of interest tends to lie in, in the fairy world, Titania and Oberon and, the, and the, the boys' chorus as well. And indeed, when the music begins, we get this extraordinary sense of something utterly unearthly, don't yeah, we? Yeah, those sliding strings, which sounds like the kind of voice of the forest itself as you kind of enter and sort of becomes a kind of all-embracing thing, yeah. And the forest on the move, almost, yeah. one sometimes. Yeah. How, how, in what follows, how conventional is the structure of the opera? Does Britain write arias, duets, choruses, ensembles? Well, it's, it's three acts. It's, it has a lot of, it has more duets and arias than, uh, than I think Britain typically <laughs> does. At the same time, I think it tends to sort of play with convention rather than being conventional. I think the, the music for the, the two lovers, the sets of lovers, um, tends to be quite conventional, but then the music for the fairies tends to call on sort of more archaic uh, conventions, 17th, 18th century Priscillian conventions. We have the um, the play of the rustics that's sort of parodying 19th century operatic convention. So I think there's a lot of play with convention. And one of the other changes that maybe follows as a result of having not a first act, that the real quarrel at the heart of this opera is between Oberon and Titania about the changeling boy and not the quarrel over whether the lovers can do what they want to do. Yeah, and I think that's part of changing the focus to the, to the fairy world. And we definitely get the sense of Oberon, you know, behind the scenes, pulling the strings. It's very much him controlling the action in some ways. And yet it still seems to be an opera that is about chaos that leads from desire, that desire causes chaos. I mean, right the way down to Titania falling in love with an ass. Yeah, although Oberon also causes that in a way, right? So I think there's, there's a, you know, the opera, that's true. I think the opera is about 
the enchanted, the magical, the irrational. It's about a topsy-turvy world, the world of night where things are turned upside down and then set right in a more refreshed way at the end. And, and the irrationality of desire plays into that, but is, I think, just one part of this sort of larger sense of a magical world. And does the fact that the play, when eventually performed by the Room Mechanicals, and is about a set of heroic lovers who actually are much more comic, does that, in a sense, stand as a deliberate contrast to what the other lovers, and indeed maybe Oberon and Titania, are experiencing? Does it kind of mock, um, ironise the whole idea of the heroic lover? Perhaps. I mean, I think the, the, the opera takes place very much on these three different planes, and how they relate to each other, I think, is often quite unclear. It's more as if we just have these different layers, these different ways of thinking about things. And yes, the, the play of the rustics is very much a, a kind of parody of romance, a parody of opera, very much specifically a parody of, of Donizetti in some ways. Um, but uh, yeah, does it actually undo the more serious lovers? I don't know. I think they exist sort of on their own plane, and, and Titania and Oberon exist on their more unearthly plane as well, and everyone sort of coexists. Why do you think the fairies are sung by boys, by boy trebles? Uh, the boys' chorus. Um, well, you know, it plays into it. does make the opera have a very distinctive sound. I think that's one way in which it really kind of departs from operatic conventions. Um, but it does play into Britain's kind of long-term interest in, in the boys' choir, and it, it's used in very similar ways. Um, it's used in kind of similar ways in the, in the war requiem as something very unearthly, is treated as something quite cold, even in the way it's orchestrated. It's, it has this kind of brittle um, sound with harp and harpsichord, this very bright kind of cold, unearthly sound. And, and so he's very much using the boys' choir to fit into that um, sort of slightly uh, inhuman sound world that he tends to create for them from the ceremony of carols um, all the way through the, the, um, the war requiem. I, I suggested it was, in a sense, Britain's fascination with innocence, <coughs> um, mm. uh, and indeed that secondary theme that runs around is innocence betrayed. Is that, is that over, over-reading it, do you think? Maybe. I mean, I think there is that. I think Britain's boys tend to not be that innocent in a certain way, that there's a slightly kind of dangerous edge about them, that, that kind of hard, brittle um, edge that you get, I think, in the orchestration, too. Um, so I think it, it's, it's, there's a little bit of ambiguity there. Yeah. We, we've got images here from the production behind us by Robert Carson. Um, I haven't been checking, but I'm sure that somewhere there is Puck. Now, um, one of the Puzzles of Puck, a wonderful performance, incidentally, on stage this evening. One of the puzzles of Puck is it's a spoken role. Mm. I've often wondered why. Mm. Do you have a thought about that? Well, I'm not sure how it's staged here. I haven't seen it yet. I'll see it tonight. But um, it was written as a... I tend to think of it more as a dancing role than a, than a spoken role. It's, it was written as an acrobatic role. Um, it was written for, for an adolescent boy, um, actually the son of a very, very famous dancer, Leonid Messine. Um, <laughs> And, um, you know, I think it's kind of in line with Cetazio in, mm. in Death in Venice, another adolescent boy dancing role, in that case silent, so in this case speaking, both slightly outside the world of the opera. Mm. And I think also, you know, it makes a certain amount of sense for Puck not to sing in that he's a little bit outside the yeah. world of the action, isn't he? he mm. He's the one character who kind of moves between all of these different worlds, um, and communicates um, communicates across them. Other people, other characters don't really have that kind of freedom, so he's a little bit outside. 
How, how bold in the late uh, 1950s, early 60s was it to make Oberon a countertenor? Very, and I think that's really one of the most kind of important sort of influential um, aspects of this opera. It was written for Alfred Deller, who was the most famous countertenor in this country at the time, but he hadn't done operatic roles before. I don't think there had been any 20th century operas written with a countertenor in mind. I don't think people normally even performed Handel operas with countertenors, so that was not something you would see on the operatic stage. Um, and, and Deller, whose performance was, was quite criticized, Deller was more of a, a, of a kind of Purcell singer and, and more of a church singer, a recitalist, so uh, he wasn't kind of used to being on the operatic stage, but I think there was something Britain kind of liked about this sort of unoperatic presence just landing on stage. Um, and it does seem to sort of come from, the voice type seems to just come from a different world. So I think it plays into, um, the, again, the sort of inhuman, magical character of Oberon, the fact that he's kind of outside the world of this opera. And it's a trend, I think, it's interesting to see how, that, how much that has caught on. It's become very important in kind of later 20th century operas. Um, it's, you know, it's a, almost a kind of convention to have a, a, a countertenor, but that's something that really starts with this opera. And, and I think the way it's treated in this opera really kind of carries over into, into later operas as well. But as you suggest, there's a continuity because, of course, Britain's huge admiration for Purcell yep. um, will have made him familiar with this kind yep. of kind of voice. So yep. it, it, it's, not, it's not Britain doing something radically new. It's him, again, borrowing something from the past. Yeah, so he knew Alfred Deller from singing Purcell. And, and, and I think, so, as with the boys' choir in some ways, taking something from out, slightly outside the, the, at least the, the kind of 19th, 20th century operatic world and, and uh, importing it to opera, making something new out of that. Yeah. What kind of orchestra do we have in the pit? Um, it's, it's quite a small orchestra because Jubilee Hall is small, um, but very, very mixed. And so you get a lot of different colors. And that's, it's used in part to, to again, differentiate these different sound worlds. You have a lot of percussion, these very bright, cold colors from the harp um, and harpsichord, and also celesta, you, you'll hear very noticeably with, um, uh, with Oberon. Right? He always, so th those um, colors kind of belong to the fairy world and then you have rich winds and strings for the for the world of the human lovers and then uh, kind of comic um, woodwinds bassoons that sort of thing for the for the world of the rustics and their play the thing I find remarkable is something you said earlier Britain is writing this opera um, against the clock as we know yeah. but simultaneously he's completing the largest and the most public commission he's ever had for the yeah. raw record and he's writing Curly River. Yeah. This intense um, experience grew out of him going to Japan and seeing uh, uh, Japanese theatre. I mean, what does this tell us about Britain? This ability to keep these three yeah. entirely different balls up in the air at the same time. I don't time. know. He worked incredibly hard. But I, I think that the... That you know, the sense of kind of joy and release that you get in Midsummer Night's Dream is is very much part of the of the process. I think of the thing. It, it was a sort of break from these very very serious things he was working on. Right. Heather, stay with us. Thank you very Thanks, much for the week. Thank you. We're joined now by the soprano Charlotte Beeman, who is covering the role of Titania in this revival of Robert Carson's production from Midsummer Night's Dream, and by Richard Pearson, who's a member of the music staff here at English National Opera. Will you welcome Charlotte and Richard?
Charlotte, let me begin with a, what appears to be a very simple question, actually probably much more complicated. Um, who do you think Titania is? Titania, to me, is um, a very strong, confident, fierce woman, um, used to being waited upon and used to being in control. Um, I do think that there is a kindness to her and she knows love. She loves Oberon and she's passionate too. What, what have you discovered about her that you weren't quite so certain about as you've rehearsed the role? Um, in the vein of 2018 being the year that women got the vote, um, I love playing a character that is a very strong woman and that's what I was really excited about with Titania. And the one thing that I found really difficult is that when she does come around after the spell, she's not more angry with Oberon and she's just sort of accepting of what's happened and passes him the boy in. Her relationship hard. with Oberon is a puzzling one, isn't it? You say mm. she loves him deeply, but th there are kind of fault lines that run through it too, that she shouldn't be angry, um, that she accepts that she's uh, got tangled up with an ass, etc., etc. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I like the idea that they're, they're more equally um, as, as fierce as each other. And I find... That the fact that she isn't more angry with him afterwards, I find that quite difficult, really. But mm. um, I think it's because she... I mean, as she's just woken up, I think she's just still in that dreamy place and she's just really overcome by what's happened. Um, and maybe, I don't know, two weeks down the line, he does get a... <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. Yeah. After the show is over, she'll give him. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, do you think that she's unreasonable um, uh, uh, in, in, in refusing to give up the changeling boy to Oberon? Or is Oberon totally unreasonable in demanding this boy? Well, I mean, she does say in the libretto that she, um, the, the boy was of a son of her, one of her admirers and that she died in childbirth. And Titania felt like it was her place to look after this boy. And I feel like, uh, well, the, the way in this production that Oberon treats Puck, um, I think that it is her right to have the changeling boy and to protect him the way she wants to protect him. That's very interesting. So you see a kind of paralleling between Puck and this little changeling boy. This is her little familiar, just as, as Puck is, is Oberon's familiar. Yeah, I think I do, yeah. So we might expect him to go... You've set a real train running in there. <laughs> um, is this a work you knew before you began to work on this production? I did already know this. I covered it uh, for Glyndebourne in 2016. So I knew the piece well already. That, of course, was a very famous production by Peter Hall. Yes. Originally. Yes. Um, what, what, what do you remember about that when you were working on that? Um, well, I remember feeling like she was a stronger character in that. So I remember, I, I feel like um, she has a baby. The changeling boy is a baby in this production. And I feel like there's something to do with the way that 
she has to hold it in her arms that takes the power away from her somehow. I feel like when it's a boy and you're holding its hand, it's different. There's not that same protection there. And I just feel like she's a stronger character <laughs> in the other production. But there's, there's a lovely w way to put her across in this way as well. So, What does Britain provide for his singers? Um, really tricky music. <laughs> no. Um, he provides... Well, once the music's learnt, it just makes sense. The way you say the text is the way that it's sung, so he uses rhythm in a really beautiful way. Um, the music is tricky, but once you've got it, it, you don't think that it could be set any other way. It well, just feels the, right. What are the tricky things? Um, well, the tricky things for this role is it's high. Um, it generally sits quite high. Um, and the, the rhythms are very tricky. Um, sometimes you'll just have a duplet out of nowhere and then we'll go back into normal time. Um, the, the pictures of the notes don't always make sense. You don't always get your starting note within a chord. It's not like playing the flute where you put your fingers down and the note comes out. You've got to pitch this out of nowhere. So those sorts of things are tricky. And he also writes in a lot of... Um, uh, what's the word? <laughs> he writes in, you know, lots of dynamics, lots of um, accents, and, I mean, you could just learn it forever. I've done the role twice now, and I feel like I could sing it four more times and still add more and more in. That suggests that it's written in such a way that you have lots of choices to make. Yes, you do, yes. You feel like when you're learning it that there's only one way that you can possibly sing it and he has such a clear idea in his mind. And that was the interesting thing about coming to another production. I, I felt like I could just turn up and sing it the way I'd sung it before, but each conductor has a different idea about what um, piano means. Does it mean that she's upset about it? Does it mean that she's really angry about it? And, and that all comes across in a different way. So that's been very interesting as well. And, and are you in performance with this role? Are you able to change your mind in performance? Or once you've established how you're going to sing it, do you stay with it? <clears throat> um, once you've rehearsed something and it's in your body and you have your journey of, of your emotions through an opera, I feel like you do stay with it. But I guess if something changed in your mind or something changed in the production with something somebody else was doing and you suddenly felt differently about her character, you could still use that, yeah. And what are you going to sing for us with Richard Dunn? I'm going to sing Be Kind and Courteous. And just tell us where that comes in the story. Oh, God, good question. Um, <laughs> Be Kind and Courteous is... Um, in the act two part where she's just woken up and fallen in love with Bottom, the ass, um, and she's telling the fairies to go and look after him and treat him very well, and they are very confused about this. Let's have a listen. Thanks. Be kind and courteous, first with this gentleman. Oh, 
Charlotte Beam and Richard Pearson, thank you both very much indeed. Well, our last guest this afternoon is Sarah Hamza, who is the costume supervisor here at English National Opera. Please welcome our last guest, Sarah Hamza. Sarah, how did you come to work in the costume department here at English National Opera? What was the journey that brought you here? Um, so from having a passion in textiles at GCSE and always watching my mum making my school uniform, so I grew up watching someone on a sewing machine all the time. Um, my passion then quickly developed into doing um, a costume degree uh, and then I went on to do work, various freelance work through musicals, through plays. Um, I worked at the Royal Opera House before this and I've now been at English National Opera for five years in the costume department here. Was there a moment when you faced a crossroads, uh, or a fork in the road, I should say, really, where you could go the way you've gone, or you could become a designer? Um, it hasn't come across my path, um, but I think there are various times when uh, I've met designers who have worked previously in running wardrobe departments, um, or they've done various different roles within costume before they became a designer. So there is um, a leeway into uh, transversing into different types of roles in the department. And is there a kind of formal training within uh, wherever uh, the higher education institution is that, that brings you to working within the, the costume department? Um, yes, there are several different courses uh, around the UK. I did mine at London College of Fashion where they teach you how to do work within design and making, essentially. So I did my first two years um, learning women's wear and men's wear, and then you get to decide what you want to do in your final year. Um, and each time you make something, you're designing that piece as well. So you begin to learn to understand how to dissect a character and what it means um, to create a character just through their style and through their clothing. What other particular skills do you think, as you've gone on through this, Opera House and here and the theatre as well, what are the skills that are central to what you do? Um, I think having a passion in textiles, um, being able to problem solve creatively, 
um, being able to interpret what a designer asks of you, um, being able to remember things like colors and, and shapes, the way that they describe things in order to um, envision how they want their characters to be designed and what they want their costumes to look like in the end. Um, I look sometimes at costume designs and I look in wonder at how people like you translate <laughs> two dimensions into three. I mean, there must be an awful lot sometimes of education of designers to explain to them, no, you can't do that, it's not <laughs> going to work. It's never a no. It's, um, it's always a, a working process to find uh, a good compromise between what they've created and what you can produce. <laughs> um, a lot of the time you get designs that might be collages or they might be beautiful drawings, um, they might be references. Um, Michael Levine created a beautiful hand drawing and then he also gave us a reference from a magazine of a dress um, for his costume design of Titania. Um, and all of that kind of knowledge and information that a designer can give you um, as much as possible, not just from the beginning, but through the whole journey um, can really help. And it's down to you and your team as well to, to provide creative answers for him as well or for her. Let, let's turn to the, the revival we're about to see this evening, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, this was first seen, I think, 27 years ago yes. on the stage here. How are the costumes maintained over a quarter of a century? What did you find when you opened the boxes, looked at the, the hangers? Um, I think I went woof. And, uh, <laughs> and I think um, even Michael, who came back to work on this production, um, said 27 years later, we're still getting there. Um, because it is a journey and it is a developing design as well. Um, from when it was first produced 27 years ago, we have the designs and sometimes you have fabrics that are still available, sometimes you don't. And as the years develop as well, the designer often tweaks and changes a couple of details, um, especially, for example, with Titania's dress, um, looking at how it was done two years ago, he felt that he wanted um, a different line on the shoulder and he, he wanted the pleats to hang in a different way. Um, so we made that possible for this production. Um, the lining wasn't available for this dress this time around and it was a very specific blue-green shot lining um, and the colours are very important to him. So we had to find another alternative for that and we went around and sourced all the different blue-green uh, varieties that are available um, and you picked one of those and that worked. Literally going shopping together? Um, well uh, one of the roles that we have as a buyer is to, to go around and sort of do all the shopping for a designer so then we come back with the 10 to 100 possibilities that they could have and hopefully that they'll pick one. <laughs> and did you have to remake a lot of the costumes for this show? We remade about half the costumes um, and reused the other half um, from the previous production from Axon Provence, which was from 2015. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. and, and did you remake them because Michael changed his mind uh, and you wanted to do something different? Or did you remake them because somehow they were beyond rescue? Um, a little bit of A, B and C. Um, and also, um, when we come to doing a revival, one of the first things we do is look at the measurements of our current cast, 
um, look at the measurements for these costumes. And if that doesn't quite work, then those are the ones that have to have a priority being remade. But one of the problems, maybe I'm, I'm being naive here, is that I imagine in the, in the original production, um, by the time you get it onto stage, there may be other things you want to do, but you've got a kind of feel for what the costumes ought to be, how they interact in an opera where there are three, as we've said, groups of characters, how they all relate. Um, and I wonder um, how you integrate changes of quite a big kind, the new lining for Titania's dress, with what you originally had. Is that difficult, that integration? Um, it's difficult when you don't find possibilities. Fortunately, we were able to find um, things that are replaceable or adaptable within Michael's designs. Um, he was always around to make the decisions, which was really helpful. Um, so whenever we had to do any of those kind of changes, um, it always went through Michael first. And I wonder also if it's helpful, as in this case, if the costume designer is the same designer as the set designer. Is that, does that make your life easier? Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, with You're Michael, friends, <laughs> truth. as he was the set designer and costume designer with this production, um, and the colours tie in so heavily between the set and the costumes, um, you'll see probably from the screen and then when you see it on stage later tonight, the, the greens and the blues play a huge part um, in both the set and the costumes. Um, things like Titania's gloves that she wears, we dyed twice because we wanted to, to, to tie in with her dress, satin, as well as the night sky, as well as the, the fairies' blue trousers, and then their gloves had to match their blue trousers, and then the greens had to match Oberon. Um, so colour was a huge, his important hair as issue. Well as his, uh, yes. That's his thing. Um, in, the, in the show, the characters, the three groups of characters, um, generally wear costumes from different historical eras. Can you just explain, without giving anything away and spoiling the reveal, as it were, can you tell us how that works? Um, well, then I'll, I'll only talk about the lovers. Um, where you have uh, Lysander and um, Hermia, I think they're, they're predominantly from the 19th century period and um, Demetrius and Helena are more of a, a 1950s feel and, and it was more to portray... Their, their characters and, and who they are instinctively. So you sort of get an idea of what they're like and Lysander and Hermia being a bit more uh, flouncy and romantic and Demetrius and Hella being a bit more serious is, is the idea that's conveyed by that historical attachment. Sophie has been nobly holding up this <laughs> board, uh, rather like one of those people in television shows in the 1950s who <laughs> went round with the scores. Um, is there anything on the board you want to talk about that, that, that is specific to what we've been saying? Um, it was just um, to show uh, the different processes that we can go through from having uh, the original drawing design to having uh, a reference, which is the, uh, the dress in pink, um, and then seeing the whole design come together as a costume, which is the one in the middle, and then seeing the, the two different um, fabrics that we have there. Um, one is for under the costume and one is the top fabric. Um, and even though they're from two completely different places and two different shops, how that marriage of blue works so well and, and it, the process in finding those things. Let me be clear. So Michael would first have given you the drawing on the left, Mm -hmm. Then he'd given us as a reference the, the photograph on the right. Yes. And out of that, you make what happens in the middle. Yes. <laughs> right, right. right. Um, how, how early do you get involved in the process? 
Uh, I had this production in the building around November, October, November last year, and we've been working on it ever since. And, and what, if it were a, a new production rather mm -hmm. than, in this case, a revival, what would be the first thing that you would do? Uh, the first thing is probably, I mean, it can kind of... Uh, segue into different ways that you want to work it you can either sort of look at the cast and, and start getting measurements in um, when you're sitting down with a designer looking at their designs looking at what would be made and what would be um, bought um, looking at the different colors uh, the fabrics that you might need what kind of fabrics what they're going to do on stage if they're going to need specific um, stretchy fabrics if they're moving a lot how it's going to be cut and who's going to make those things so it's kind of um, a range of different decisions that have to be made, and so you, you can kind of pick and choose which one you want to start with first. How do you decide what you're going to make, what you're going to hire, um, uh, 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 or borrow? How do you make that decision? Um, I think that's a process with the, with the supervisor and the designer to sort of understand uh, which of the things are sort of more technical, um, which are the things that you could sort of easily buy, and, and so... You know, you, you don't really want to uh, go into that time in, in making something that you can source um, from a shop, um, depending on the style, if it's something that we can actually buy today or if it's something that really needs to be made. Um, yeah. Is there a cost factor here? There is, always. <laughs> <laughs> but it's always the underlying right. issue. <laughs> and, and do you presumably, do you make the choices about, about cost or does the designer? I mean, for, I can see, for example, um, with Titania, you'd want to create something dazzling for this woman as the fairy queen, and whereas you could probably buy uh, the costumes for the boys and girls uh, in, 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 in the woods, the, the lovers. Um, is it about somehow making priorities about what ought to really jump off the stage at us? Um, I think it is the co the, a compromise between uh, the designer's needs and what the supervisor can achieve through their budget. Um, for example, when we were looking for a lining replacement, um, we had various different options with various different price ranges, um, and we offered them all to the designer. Um, and then it's sort of our job to find a middle ground in terms of price and what would still um, work with the original design. I, I, a question that occurs to me just looking at the board and uh, thinking about this, how respectful are the singers of the, of the costumes on which you've laboured so much effort? <laughs> how respectful are the singers? Yes. <laughs> Very. Very respectful. Very. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, could, you could put your fingers in your ear. They're very respectful. It's um, teaching the children to... The little boys. Yes. Yeah. Yes, to learn that respect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how they managed to all remember to find their gloves, but that's something we'll see <laughs> yeah. on stage tonight. Um, the last question I can't resist asking you. What's the most extraordinary costume you've ever been asked <laughs> to make? Do you know, I, 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 I'm not sure. When I, when I first thought about it, Having looked at, at Bottom's costume that we have on Midsummer Night's Dream tonight, even though we didn't remake this costume, it is one that sort of always grabs our attention whenever we walk past it in the, in the laundry room. Um, and we remade the head for it, um, which was a great, great process. Um, I think that's one of the most remarkable ones to date. So, yeah, so that's one to watch tonight. <laughs> um, and when the show has, has run its course um, and the last performance has taken place, how long does it take you to pack up? 
the costumes? Um, we send everything off to be dry cleaned and then any sort of maintenance that we need to fix before we send it back to Axon Provence. Um, if it's a really tight schedule, we can turn it around pretty quickly. It depends how fast um, the next opera house needs it. Sarah, thank you very much indeed. No Love problem. it. Thank you. Trade secrets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, some, some notices and thank yous. If you would like a drink, uh, then uh, the bar in the circle is open. Uh, I don't think the one below us is yet open, and this one clearly isn't, so you can make your way to the circle. Uh, secondly, don't forget, if you've enjoyed this evening and you've come for the first time, we have pre-performance talks before every production that is staged here on the Coliseum, staged by English National Opera. Um, lastly, I thank all of you for being a wonderfully attentive, thoughtful audience, but above all, can I thank our four guests who've given us such information and pleasure. Thank you all.